Hezbollah needs to be driven back, it needs to be defanged, and I believe that ultimately we're going to have to do that, whether we do it in this round or another round. I think this round is the time. The country is already in a, on a war footing. I don't believe that we will initiate a major operation in Lebanon before the rainy season is over, unless we have to. wondering where I am. I am in Frankfurt, Germany. I'm at the airport ready to head back to the United States after an incredible week of filming in Israel. Now folks, much of the action right now in Israel obviously is taking place to the north along the Lebanon border just last night after Israel eliminated a Hezbollah commander in southern Lebanon with a drone strike. Hezbollah launched some 30 rockets into northern Israel and the upper Galilee region. It's an absolute tinderbox. I spent several days to the north right along the border, including with our good friend, IDF Reserve Major Elliot Chodoff. We were in Rosh Hanigra, again folks, on the Mediterranean coast, literally on the Lebanon border. Elliot broke down not only the Hezbollah threat, we also talked about these potential Hamas hostage deals the Houthi threat, and much more. Here's our interview on the Israel-Lebanon border. Folks, we are on the Israel-Lebanon border. Rosh Hanikra, which is one of the most northernmost points in Israel, is just beyond us. The Mediterranean Sea is behind us, and this is a closed military zone. We've got exclusive access here, and this zone is closed because, again, the Lebanon border is right there, and that means Hezbollah country lurking above us and tensions continue on a daily basis between Israel and Hezbollah. So we couldn't think of a better person to bring in, to break it all down for us, and our good friend, Elliot Chodoff, reserve major in the Israel Defense Forces, strategic military analyst expert, and a regular here on The Watchman. Elliot, wish was under better circumstances, yep. of course. Okay, you and I are going to talk Lebanon, Hezbollah, which you are a foremost expert on, but you want to talk also about hostages, the hostage situation. You and I were talking a bit off camera and you said, look, we got to talk about these proposed hostage deals with Hamas. What's the latest? Break that down for us. Well, the, the latest today is that there's a framework on the table, and I think it's important to say a framework, not an offer, not a deal that was put together in Paris. Hamas was not part of that, but Israel was, the United States, Qatar, uh, France, of course. And it's a framework of how to go about dealing with the hostage situation. That framework was put to Hamas. And as of this morning, Hamas has emphatically not accepted it. They haven't outright rejected it, but emphatically not accepted it. Not surprisingly. By the way, over 100 hostages that we know still living in Hamas captivity. Okay, so the, the official number today is a, is a little over 130. Honestly, I don't believe the number is that high in terms of living hostages. So some of the perpetrators of the massacre on October 7th would be released as part of this deal? Yes. Potentially? Yes. In return for hostages, and here I think we have to emphasize, this is not a hostage exchange. This is a deal of hostages for terrorists, murderers. Big difference. Right, it's, absolutely. It's, it's, it's not a, a symmetrical trade-off that we're holding some people politically and they're holding hostages. So how does, Elliot, how does Israel accomplish this? Look, the, the two main war aims, number one, bring the hostages home, of course, yes. and number two, destroy Hamas. Can the two both be accomplished? They can both be accomplished. However, 
they are they cannot both be first priority and here this is part of israel's great dilemma today israel's facing a moral dilemma and it's facing a strategic dilemma the moral dilemma is we want to bring the hostages back there's no question and by the way the demonstrations here are very loud and legitimate families and friends of hostages for them their highest priority as it should be i think for many of them yeah uh is bring my husband brother sister sure. son daughter home and i don't care what it costs the government on the other hand has to care what it costs for the government bringing home the hostages is certainly a moral imperative yeah but it's not the only one there are other strategic imperatives. We can't turn this around and have this happen again in a year or two or three or four. Yeah. We set a very bad precedent with the Shalit deal. We released over a thousand terrorists, including Sinwar. Mastermind of October of, of 7th. October 7th and others who were involved. Yeah. Here I want to be very clear. The failure of the 7th was a failure of the Israeli military. The event of the 7th is the responsibility of Sinwar and his cohorts. And the two, one, one doesn't contradict the other. Yeah. We set a very high bar for them, and we also showed them that there's a value to having hostages. If we can release over a thousand terrorists for one soldier, what if they're holding over a hundred? And having done that, we paradoxically, and I don't think we could have done anything different. So here, this isn't criticism, it's, it's analysis. We essentially established a high value for hostage taking. If returning Hamas to power is the price, I don't think the country is willing to pay it. Uh, one of the things that, that is not being talked about is the, the sort of the counterpoint to the family's uh, protest, and I'll say again, legitimate protest, are the 300,000 reservists who are still called up, many of them, and some released, like myself, and told, you know, don't get too comfortable at home because we're calling you back, who are saying, you know what? We've already given up this year of our lives. We've lost friends in combat. We are not going home until this is over, until we've done the job, yeah. finished the job, and finishing the job means finishing Hamas. So that, that there's a, a quieter, but very, very potent counterpoint to the issue of the hostages that's going on simultaneously. What a tough situation, Elliot, yeah. obviously. And you are among many reservists who had to leave your family, leave your kids, your wife, and go and fight for the existence of the world's one and only Jewish state. This morning, before we came here, folks, again, this is a closed military zone. We have exclusive access granted by the Israel Defense Forces. And again, Lebanon has blocked a stone's throw away right over, right over yonder there. Another very difficult situation, Elliot, with not a lot of easy answers, I guess you would say. Uh, what's the latest on these daily battles? This is a second front between Israel and Hezbollah. I think there are a number of reasons for what we're seeing. I believe that Hezbollah was planning to come in in the aftermath of the attack on the 7th. Uh, Hamas actually claims that they had agreed to go in on the 7th and they reneged at the last moment. Wow. So this is going to be a two-front two invasion. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, because, you know, these people, you know they're lying because their lips are moving. Uh, <laughs> but oh, yeah. I do believe that they did plan to go in in the immediate, immediate aftermath. Israel was seen as weak. Uh, I remind you that prior to the attack, Israel was divided politically. There, was the huge, the, there were the huge protests against the government over the judicial reform issues, yeah. etc. And I... I believe that they, with Iran 
pulling the strings from behind, thought that a two-front attack would shatter Israel, Israel would be paralyzed, it wouldn't be able to respond to either one, etc. Israel did a number of things that were critical in stabilizing this border. One was that on the 7th already, the government declared that we're at war, and that's significant. Uh, may I remind you that America still doesn't believe it's at war with Iran. Okay. Well, no, they're but, in one. But, uh, exactly. But, but being aware of it and declaring it has a value. It has a political value. It has an ideological value. It has a social value. Two, also on the 7th, that morning, the protest leaders said, this protest is on hold. Everybody goes. You get called up because there, there was talk about people refusing to serve. You get called, you go. Countries in danger, yeah. high priority. Next, in the next days, Israel mobilized between three and 400,000 reservists. They, in the largest call-up in Israel's history, numerically, and the fastest in Israel's history. Within days, 300 plus thousand reservists were sent to the two borders, north and south. And suddenly Hezbollah is not facing a strung out single division along the border, which was yeah. the case before. Now it's facing multiple divisions on high alert, ready to go to war. And the decision was made to evacuate the population within a few kilometers of the border to remove them from an immediate vulnerable threat from Hezbollah. And now suddenly Hezbollah's plans are shattered. They can't simply sit there and do nothing. We're beating Hamas up badly in Gaza. They can't just sit back and say, well, yeah, we're going to let it happen. So they've launched a static fire war against Israel along the border. They've done a lot of damage, by the way, particularly with anti-tank missiles to houses, structures, buildings all along the border in, in villages and towns. Yeah, 80,000 people evacuated. OK, so the people are evacuated, but their houses are being destroyed yeah. by Hezbollah. We, at the same time, are pounding them heavy, heavily with air and artillery. We've killed some 200 of them so far, which is an insignificant number to the organization. We've done a lot of damage to their infrastructure in the south, but let's make no mistake. We have not done strategic damage to them. In other words, they are still as powerful as they always were if they want to launch an attack against them. And real quick, do you see this as being an inevitable great northern war that's coming? I can't say inevitable because I don't believe in inevitable. Okay, What happens is a result of decisions, and sometimes decisions force each other's hand. But inevitable implies there's no way that it couldn't happen. There is a way it can't happen, but it's not going to not happen. Let's put it that yeah. way. Hezbollah is going to remain Hezbollah. It, is, it was born dedicated to the destruction of Israel. They will not step down from that any more than Hamas stepped down from its demand yeah. for the destruction of Israel, its belief in the destruction of Israel. It's who they are. And it's, 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 it's their raison d'etre. Yeah. This is what they exist for. So any sort of quasi-agreement that moves Hezbollah six, seven, eight, ten kilometers back from the border is nonsense. We already had that. We did that after 2006. That's right. And they infiltrated back. And there was, yeah. Hezbollah needs to be driven back. It needs to be defanged. And I believe that ultimately we're going to have to do that, whether we do it in this round or another round. I think this round yeah. is the time, and not because I'm a warmonger, but because we're already mobilized. The country is already in a, on a war footing. Yeah. 
Now, having said that, um, as you can see and feel by the weather, and you know, you've been here a few days, it's been raining nonstop it's for chilly. a couple of weeks. It's chilly. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, and, and the rain isn't over yet, and the rainy season certainly isn't over. I don't believe that we will initiate a major operation in Lebanon before the rainy season is over, unless we have to. We can do it, but prefer not to. Bad weather favors the defender. They're already dug in and inside, and, and we would have to be outside and exposed. Movement, even of tanks and, and armored vehicles, is made more difficult by mud. And if it's not muddy when you start out, after the first two tanks go through it, it becomes muddy. Yeah. And a quagmire limits the ability of air and artillery to support your, your forces. In other words, there's a certain handicap of bad weather to an attacker, especially an attacker like the IDF, that has yeah. heavy yeah. weapons and support. If we have to, we can do it. Yeah. But I believe that if we initiate it, we're not going to initiate it in, in the coming weeks. Uh, again, until until the weather moves into a much more conducive yeah. environment. No, it makes sense, Ellie, and you would know, of course, and it seems to be ultimately a question out of if but when, yeah. uh, and maybe not, like you said, during this rainy season. Hey, uh, moving south, we've talked hostages, Hezbollah, now the Houthis, Another Iranian proxy, of course, causing a lot of trouble in the Red Sea. What do you make of their status right now? Have they been weakened? And what do you make of these joint operations by the U.S. and U.K. against the Houthis? Long overdue, but are they effective? Okay, first of all, Eric, you know I've been talking about the Houthis for quite a number of years. They are Iran's arm in Yemen. And up until recently, people would say, so who cares about Yemen? And I would always say, well, look at the map. Yemen controls the Straits of Bab al-Mandeb, which everybody knows today is the entrance to the Red Sea. In other words, effectively the gate to the Suez Canal. And Iran, the Iranian leadership, thinks strategic. This is one of the choke points, and we've seen the impact. Maersk, large, if not the largest uh, maritime shipper in the world, is now going around Africa. It's costing more. It's delaying things. And BP as well. BP, exactly. Yeah. A, a number of them. This is a big deal. And, right. And it affects every American as well. That's right. Now, Iran understands that there are only a few choke points of maritime shipping in the world. Bab al-Mandeb is one of them, the Suez Canal. The Panama Canal is another. Hint, that's why the Iranian Navy is in the Gulf of Mexico. That Talk about a news flash, uh, a warning bell for people. Okay. The Iranian Navy in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And in the Caribbean. The Straits of Hormuz. Iran controls that. There's a picture here that, that if you look at it in segments, it doesn't mean anything, but if you put them, in, put them together, you have a jigsaw puzzle that gives you a picture. And that's, that's what they're doing. That's the Iranian side of it. Why? Because Iran has global aspirations, and, and let's be clear here, tied to Russia, tied to China, tied to North Korea. Incidentally, we found North Korean weapons in Gaza. Chinese weapons in Gaza. Yeah. Big surprise to, not to me. No. If we want to talk about an axis of evil, throw Venezuela into the mix yeah. and, and there you are. There, you've, got, you've got the group. I've called them the, the Gathering Storm Coalition. Okay. And their target is the United States of America. Yes. Let's be very clear about that. The shipping damage that's being done is done primarily to the United States. Not only, but primarily. And here, I think it's important also to, to point out, America 
commercially is essentially an island. You have no real commercial land borders. I mean, with all due respect to Canada and Mexico, your, your economy is based on maritime shipping. Yeah. And choking that really hurts the American economy. The U.S. Navy was created to fight piracy under Jefferson. To the shores of Tripoli. Right. And here we have essentially piracy on the high seas. The American response started as totally inadequate and moved to just plain inadequate. First, taking out a few of their drones as they're fired or their missiles doesn't do the job because hitting the ships is not the problem. I mean, it's, it's a problem, but threatening the ships is the problem. In other words, the, the shippers are not going to sail through there if their ships are being threatened, whether they're being hit or not. Yeah. The next step was to start striking Houthi targets and there too, it's, it's done some damage. But Iran is resupplying them. In other words, not, taking out their equipment has, real, has no real effect on them. Yeah. At the same time, we see the attacks against American bases, and the most recent one were three Americans who killed, but there have been nearly 200 attacks against American yeah. bases. America says it's not at war. We don't want to escalate. Well, even if you don't want to escalate, that's the exact wrong message to publicly telegraph to your enemies. The message should be, we will escalate to the point that is totally impossible for you to survive unless you stop right now. <laughs> and yeah. if they don't get that message, then you have to simply eliminate them as a threat. Yes. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean wipe them out, right. but eliminate them as a threat. And it doesn't even take a land invasion of Yemen no. or anything like that? No. America certainly has the capability, and it's sending messages. I mean, messages that I think are interesting, but not impressing them. Yeah. Sending B-1 bombers from Texas lets them know, you know, we, we can fly out of Texas and bomb you and, and come home. We have, we have the reach. Yeah, I think the problem is the Iranian regime sees those, those messages, Elliot, as you describe them, and they say, is there really any teeth behind the message? That's right. Will they actually use force because in an if, overwhelming Because way? if you keep saying, I don't want to escalate, then you're yeah. sending the wrong message with the message. Yeah. Okay, if you strike 85 targets in 30 minutes, you're sending one message. Yeah. But if in the process you've only killed 12 of their operatives, the message you're sending is, we're hitting useless targets. Yes. Because they can rebuild and resupply, and they have time. And, and, and here also, I think it, it, it's important to point out the difference between a dictatorship, a totalitarian regime, and a democracy. We're in an election year in the United States. Yeah. Time is of the essence. The administration has to show some sort of result before November. Yeah. And here I want to be very clear. This isn't about Biden or, or, or Trump. Right. This is an administration that's going into an election. Yeah, that's all that interests yeah. Okay? So they're operating on a very, very tight timetable. The, the Ayatollahs are on an eternal timetable. And whatever happens this year doesn't matter because next year is another year and the year after is another year. Yeah. The current president doesn't know if he's going to be president again in January. The Ayatollah knows that he's going to be the head. Khamenei knows he's going to be supreme leader until he dies. And then his successor will be supreme leader until he dies. Yes. So this immediate short-term damage really doesn't impress them. Yeah. Elliot, what a great breakdown, my friend. Hey, it is chilly out here on the Mediterranean, it folks. Is. And what a great breakdown from the one and only Elliot Chodoff, our good friend.
Stay safe, my friend, and we will have you back, of course, with more breakdowns on the situation in the world's most volatile and strategic region, the Middle East, and we're in the heart of it right now. Elliot, thank you so much. We appreciate always it. Always a pleasure. My friend. Great job. Thanks, Thank you. Elliot. Folks, incredible analysis from our good friend Elliot Chodoff, again, right on the Israel-Lebanon border. And there were sirens soon after we left that region. Again, it was an active war zone. We had exclusive access granted by the IDF. And that's the kind of content we're bringing you throughout the next few weeks from our trip. We had great access along the Gaza border, along the Lebanon border, and beyond with the Israel Defense Forces bringing you the inside story of what's really happening in the world's most pivotal and strategic region for such a time as this. So keep it right here. Be sure to subscribe. Hey, pray for me to have safe travels back to the United States. Until next time, God bless you. And remember, never hold your peace.